power of Christ that we stand. It is by the power of Christ that we overcome. And it is through the power of Christ that we even gain greater affections for Him. Which is why we turn our attention to God's Word. So I invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. The reason why we are turning in God's Word to study it, to see it, to read it, to listen to it, is to be reminded of what we have just sung. To be reminded that Jesus Christ and His power is all that we need. His satisfaction is all that we need. And this text this morning, I, I just, I am so excited to be able to dive into it and jump into it together because I believe that this text will point us to that truth over and over and over again as we read it and as we study it. Revelation chapter 3, you remember we are in the last of the seven letters uh, to these churches in Asia Minor, the letter to the Laodiceans. The Laodiceans, we uh, covered last week, we started with the greeting. Every letter has the same seven components, beginning with the greeting. There are four main features of this city. They were known for their famous uh, textile industry. They, they had uh, this beautiful black wool that was um, taken from these uh, sheep that they farmed. They, they grew themselves right there. They were um, shepherds. They were herders of these uh, amazing sheep, and they uh, exported this to the, the entire known world. They were known, the Laodiceans were known for their garments, for their textile industry and the making of clothes. Secondly, they were known for their amazing medical college. They were known for the Phrygian powder that they used and exported that as well to the world to make this eye ointment for anybody who had a, a specific eye ailment. Thirdly, they were known for being the most affluent city in Asia Minor. They had an enormous bank. Uh, they didn't even need to be taxed anymore. They would work through their own uh, people to, to build whatever they needed to build. There was a, an earthquake um, in, in the first part of the, the beginning part of the first century, and Rome said, we'll, we'll help you recover, we'll help you rebuild. And they said, we don't need your money. We can, we can handle it all on our own. They were known for being incredibly wealthy. And fourthly, they were known for their struggling aqueduct system, notoriously struggling aqueduct system. Remember, hot water came from Hierapolis, starts with H. Both of those start with H. It came from Hierapolis, but by the time it made its way to Laodicea, it had gone through this aqueduct system, and it had become lukewarm. And there was cold water that came from Colossae. Uh, again, C&C had come from Colossae, but by the time it went to uh, Laodicea, which L, it's lukewarm. So you've got these beautiful reminders that uh, help us to understand what's going on in this text. Four main industries, wool, ISAF, finance, and water, they all come into play in this letter. Secondly, the description of Christ we saw, he is known by three things. He refers to himself as three things. Number one, he's the amen. He is uh, the, the truth. He is truthful in what he says, and he himself is the truth. This is reality. He doesn't end what he says by amen like we end our prayers by amen. He begins it by saying, hey, what I'm about to tell you is true because I am true. He is the faithful one. He's the faithful and true witness. Uh, he himself is the pioneer of being a faithful and true witness. That word witness is that word uh, martyr uh, in the Greek. And then thirdly, he is the beginning of the creation of God or the origin, the, the originator, the, the maker of the creation of God. He is the one who created everything. And those three aspects of who Jesus is uh, come into play to what the Laodiceans were struggling with. Jesus is true, he's fixed, he's faithful, he is the center of everything, and the Laodiceans are waffling, they're ineffective, they're unfaithful. They have Jesus as the outlier to their lives in the center. When Jesus says, I'm the center of everything, you need to orient yourself around me. 
Then we saw the declaration of what he knows, which normally we have some sense of a commendation. I know the, the deeds you have. I know these things. They're, they're great. Excel still more in those things. But to the church in Laodicea, he just goes straight to condemnation. There is no commendation. It goes straight from the declaration of what he knows to the criticism. That's number four, the criticism. He criticizes them for being lukewarm. We said last week there's two main interpretations for lukewarm. There's uh, hot is fervent love for Christ. Cold is hatred for Christ and completely removed from him. So lukewarm is kind of this middle ground, which we spent a little bit of time looking at that last uh, week. I believe that there's some merit to that. Uh, I think biblically there's some merit to that. I know uh, historically there's merit to that. We talked about uh, you know, Lee Strobel and, and a number of different people, that um, the Apostle Paul that God brought to faith who were not involved in the church whatsoever. But then there's the second interpretation that hot and cold are both good, right? They wanted, Laodicea wanted the hot water as hot water from Hierapolis. They wanted the cold water as cold water from Colossae. But by the time it went to Laodicea, over the the miles that it traveled, it just became lukewarm. It was useless. It was ineffective. So we talked about there being merit for both of those. And ultimately, the heart behind both of those is the same. The heart behind being faithful and effective is having a deep and fervent love for Jesus. And so we we combined those to a certain degree to see we need to go back to growing our affections for Christ. Jesus criticizes them for being poor, blind, and naked, contrasting all the things that they stood for as a city and what they had. They're not poor. They had this amazing banking system. They had all the funds that they needed to repair their city by themselves. They didn't need Rome's help. They're not poor. Jesus says they're blind. No, they, they, don't, they don't need any help with their eyesight. They made the powder that fixes eyesight problems. They, they have all this. They don't need to go anywhere else. Jesus says they're naked. No, we're not naked, the Laodiceans are saying. We can clothe ourselves with this amazing textile industry of these, uh, this beautiful black wool. We ended our time last week by just summing it all up with a number of D words The lukewarm people in Laodicea are disgusting. Jesus says, I'm going to throw you up, vomit you. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. They're deceived. They think that they are wealthy. They think that they are uh, able to see. They think that they have garments, but they're deceived. They're destitute. They have nothing. They're dirty. They're filthy. They're diseased. They have eyesight problems, and they will be destroyed. But the key is it's not yet. They will be destroyed, but not yet. And so that leads us into, just by way of introduction, into the second portion of this letter. So let's read it together. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich. Buy from me white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. Buy from me eye salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. 
Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, that's our prayer this morning. We want to have an ear to hear. We want to be receptive. We want to hear what the Spirit said to these seven churches. And, and since they were, uh, the scroll of Revelation, the, the pamphlet of Revelation was given to each of these seven churches, then we know that these churches are all eavesdropping on the letters that you wrote to the other ones. Laodicea has already heard six other letters that you wrote to the other churches. And so we have the privilege of eavesdropping along with them on things that you wrote to other churches, but pertain and they have implication for us and they apply to us as well. So Father, we ask that you would be gracious this morning, letting your spirit do what he loves to do, opening our eyes to see Christ. So we pray a prayer of dependency that we always pray every Sunday morning. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We need help. Fleshly eyes won't see the spiritual beauty that's in these words. So Holy Spirit, help us this morning. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So we looked at number one, two, three, and four last week, the greeting, the description, the declaration of what Christ knows, and the criticism. Let's pick it up in point number five, the warning. The warning. Jesus has given them a criticism, and the warning corresponds to the criticism. And the warning is in verse 18. We looked at this briefly last week because I wanted to make sure that we were able to look at it in light of taking communion together. But let's dive deeper into it together. Jesus begins in his warning by saying, I advise you, or literally I counsel you. I'm giving you counsel. Let me give you some input. Let me give you some feedback. Let me give you some counsel. As opposed to, let me command you. I command you. Why doesn't he command? Why does he counsel? I believe it's because God's desire is to forgive, not to destroy. He wants to forgive and his desire in forgiveness is for it to not be forced or robotic or, co or coerced in any way, but that it be pure, it be desired. Some of us think, myself included, that Jesus is standing in heaven with, for analogy, let's say a gun filled with his wrath, pointed at us, with one of those hair triggers where you barely touch it and it goes off. I think this is the, the typical mentality of, of non-Christians. They believe that God is up in heaven with this cannon of wrath ready, to, be destroy, ready to, to shoot forth and destroy the people that are on the earth. And if you're anything like me, you can buy into that so quickly to think that God's just there, just ready for you to make one bad move, one bad step and, and hit you with wrath, hit you with judgment, hit you with punishment. I, I do believe, to use the analogy, I do believe that God 
has this gun, and it's a hair-trigger gun, but inside it's not wrath, it's love and forgiveness. And he cannot wait to send his forgiveness to us. He can't wait to shower us with forgiveness. He is longing for that. This verse says, I want to give this to you, and I can't wait. You just, you, you tell me that you need it, and I'm giving it to you. But in his amazing kindness, he's saying, I'll, I'll wait until you understand your need for it. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to push you. I'm not going to coerce you. I will woo you. I will plead with you. And I've already shown you your need for it. But Jesus is not longing and waiting to, to shower us with judgment or punishment. No, he cannot wait to give us forgiveness. That's why these words, I advise you, I advise you, I counsel you. He would say that even to us this morning. If you find yourself uh, in this lukewarm situation, Jesus would say, you have not been destroyed yet, and I cannot wait to give you forgiveness. Come to me now. Come to me now. And then he says this, I advise you to buy from me. Buy from me. Which is crazy irony here. There's beautiful gospel irony here because he literally just told them they have nothing. They're poor. They're destitute. And then he says, buy from me. You have nothing, and then Jesus says, please buy from me. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. We referenced this in passing last week, but I just I want your eyes to see this text. Isaiah chapter 55. This is a free offer, an open offer to anyone. Behold, this is Isaiah 55, verse 1. Behold, anyone, every single one who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. So God is saying, you can buy from me with the coins that I'm going to give to you. You can make a transaction because I'm going to give you something that enables you to make that transaction. So you have nothing, but you can buy from me with nothing. But verse 2 says, you actually do have something. You spend your money for what's not even bread. You spend your wages for what doesn't satisfy. So listen carefully. We could use those words in Revelation. I advise you, I counsel you. Listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. That's what Jesus is saying in Revelation 3. You have no money. And if you come to me and you say, I have no money... I will buy it for you and give it to you. I will give you the money necessary to take from me what I have to offer. And what does God have to offer us? In verse 18, back in Revelation 3, number one, he has gold that's refined by fire, that's been purified, a spiritual purity, a pure faith, not apathetic, not hypocritical, not ineffective. This is a pure faith. Gold that's refined by fire so you can become rich. White garments, uh, pure garments. This is the purity of Christ himself being given to you so that you can stand blameless in his presence. Again, a, a amazing uh, imagery when we know that they are, are prized for their black garments. Jesus says, we have to remove those. You can't wear those. It's kind of like what he said to Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember, they knew that they were uh, naked, they were ashamed because not just physically, but they were now naked spiritually. They, they knew they had sinned and they knew that God could see every aspect and each other could see every aspect of who they were on the inside. And so they try to cover that with fig leaves. 
That's our human effort. That's our good works. We try to cover up our sin and our, our spiritual destitution, our disaster of a life. That's why we say, uh, gracious Savior of this ruined life. We are ruined, and, and we think a couple of fig leaves will fix the problem. That's why God shows up in the garden and he says, those coverings don't work, but let me give you coverings that do. And he kills an animal and he covers them with the animal skin. They deserve to die, right? He said, on the day you eat of this, you will surely die. They didn't die that day. Why? Because something else died. An animal died in their place and the animal skin was given to Adam and Eve. And God said, I'll clothe you. I'll cover you. I'll do the work and give you the the clothing that you need. That's what... Jesus is saying here to this church, I will clothe you. I'll give you the garments and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And thirdly, not only gold and not only white garments, but also eye salve. Again, this would have fit perfectly into who this church is and this city is. They have the eye ointment. They know they have the Phrygian powder that can make this amazing eye salve that can anoint eyes and reverse certain diseases. They can do that. And Jesus says, you are unable on your own to fix your spiritual sight. I need to give you eye ointment that will open your eyes. You can't open your eyes on your own. You can open your physical eyes, that's fine. But you can't open your spiritual eyes. Just write down Acts chapter 26, verse 18. Acts 26, verse 18. Paul says that he has been sent to open their eyes. This is through the Spirit. The ministry of the Word of God has been sent to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in Christ. Jesus is preached for that purpose, so that he himself would open eyes. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 4 as well. That though we are blinded, God says, let there be light and opens, pulls back the curtain and we see the beauty of the gospel. Where once we saw God as revolting, now we adore him. Where once we adored sin, now it's revolting to us. So we asked the question uh, after verse 18, the eye salve given to anoint our eyes so that we can see. We asked the question, how do we turn from being lukewarm to being fervent in our zeal for Christ and to being effectual and faithful in our ministry on his behalf. And I think we can see four steps that Jesus himself gives us in this passage. Four steps. Number one, if you want to turn in repentance, which we're going to see in the next verse, but if you want to turn in repentance from being lukewarm to being fervent and faithful, number one, you have to realize you have nothing. You have to realize you have nothing. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. You have to be poor in spirit, and then you own the kingdom. You get to own the kingdom if you've got nothing in your pockets. That's why we sang last week, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. If you think that you have something, any little amount of something to commend you to God, God will say, depart from me, I never knew you. The only person that can stand in God's presence is the person who says, I have nothing. I have nothing to offer myself to you, to commend myself to you. We throw around that question a lot, and I think it's a good question to think through, even in evangelism. If you were to die tonight and stand before God, and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would your answer be? I tell my students all the time when I'm teaching, on a weekly basis as I'm trying to share the gospel with them, I tell them all the time, my answer would be, you shouldn't. If God said, why should I let you into heaven? You shouldn't let me into heaven. 
I have done absolutely nothing that deserves or earns heaven. I have done everything in my life that deserves and earns hell. I, I don't deserve this place. I don't deserve access. I don't deserve entry. But why should I be there? Because you told me in the Bible, you revealed yourself to me, and you told me that you sent Jesus, perfect God, perfect man, truly God, truly man, at the exact same time, to live a perfect sinless life that I needed to live to get to God on my own, but I have failed day after day after day. And then he died on the cross. He died in my place. He bore my punishment. He took away my penalty. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and conquering death. So, I don't deserve to be in heaven. Jesus won heaven for me. The only reason I can be there is Christ. That's why chapter 4, we're going to see Jesus is exalted as the lamb who was slain. Jesus is exalted as the one who's worthy to receive the reward of his sufferings. Jesus is saying, I can give you everlasting life. But step number one is you have to come with nothing. You have to bring nothing to him. Step number two, If you want to turn in repentance to be fervent and faithful, number one, realize you have nothing. Number two, cling to Christ who has everything. Cling to Christ who has everything. That's why in this conversation, in this question, I say, I don't deserve to be there because I have nothing. But the only way I can be there is because I cling to Christ who has everything. And I don't even do that perfectly. I don't even cling perfectly to Christ. I need help even in my clinging to him. That's why I love him. That's why I love Jesus. Uh, Those of you who were at the Ever Generation Conference, you remember Ted Tripp said that he would sit down with his son and would say, instead of alienating himself and distancing himself and saying, how could you do this? Why would you ever think this is acceptable? We went home Saturday. The conference was on a Saturday. We went home that day, and my son did something, and I went, how could you? Hang on one second. And I, I tried to think through, I realized I, I thought he was, I was better than him, and I, I wasn't on the same playing field as he was, and I, I boiled down what he was struggling with, what, with what I struggle all the time with, and, and I sat on his bed, and I said, you know, you have a really selfish heart. You have a really selfish heart, buddy. But you know who else has a selfish heart? Now, his answer to that was God, because that's usually the answer that you give. So I had to say, no, 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 no. I mean, good job, but no. I said, I have a selfish heart. He goes, you do? I said, oh, I'm impatient with you all the time, because I want to get my way right now, and you're standing in the way of me getting what I want. I'm, I'm so selfish. I said, Ethan, can, can you fix your own heart? And he knows the answer to that. The answer is a clear no. I can't fix my heart. I said, can daddy fix your heart? He said, no. He said, no one can fix our hearts. We're in trouble. And we're hopeless. I said, is that the way this ends? He goes, no. (laughs) And I just hugged him and I said, Ethan, We have all the hope in the world because of Jesus. I have a selfish heart, and you've got a selfish heart, and we can't change it, but that doesn't mean we're hopeless. Let's run to Jesus. Let's cling to Christ. We have hope in him. We have no hope inside of ourselves. 
Our only hope is outside. So realize you have nothing. Cling to Christ who has everything. That's the language that Jesus is using. Come to me, buy from me. That's Isaiah chapter 55. That's Jeremiah chapter 2. Don't hew out for yourselves broken cisterns that hold no water. Go to the fountain of living waters. That's Jesus in the Gospel of John saying, I am that fountain that bubbles up to eternal life. And once you drink of it, you yourselves will have a fountain inside of you that will bubble up to other people. So realize you have nothing. Number two, cling to Christ who has everything. Number three, go back to the word again and again. Go back to the word again and again. Realize you have nothing, and the word reveals that to us. Cling to Christ who has everything, and the word reveals that to us. And then go back again and again to the word. Go back again and again to the gospel. The gospel is not only for non-believers. The gospel is for believers to be preached at, to be preached to, to be preaching to themselves. We need the gospel. So go back again and again and again to the word of God. This is why we memorize scripture. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, uh, I urge you, brothers, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. This is your spiritual act of, of worship. And then don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed. The, the world is pressing. That word conformed is just a beautiful Greek word. It means to be pressed into the mold. Don't be pressed into the mold of the world. They're constantly trying to press you into a mold. And Paul says, no, instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind through the scriptures. So don't be like the world or be pressed into the world's mold. Be conformed by the word and be pressed into the word's mold. But you have to do that over and over and over again. I don't know if you've had those moments. We've talked about it before in Pilgrim's Progress where... uh, in the, in the dungeon of despair with the, the giant despair in Doubting Castle, he owns this, uh, this dungeon and he throws Christian and his friend into the dungeon and they're just despairing and they, they don't think they're going to get out. They, they're even contemplating suicide because they don't think that they'll be able to make it out alive. And then Christian remembers, I have been given the key of promise. I have a key that unlocks every lock in the entirety of the world, and it's right here in my pocket. We have to go back again and again to that key that's the Word of God that unlocks every difficulty, every trial, every struggle that we go through. So number, number one, realize you have nothing. Number two, cling to Christ who has everything. Number three, go back again and again to the Word. And number four, pray for God to continually open your eyes. Not just one time open my eyes to the gospel, but over and over, every day, open my eyes, God, to see myself. Open my eyes to see sin for what it is. Open my eyes to see Christ for who he is. Open my eyes to see people around me that need Jesus. Open my eyes to see uh, believers around me who need encouragement. Give me spiritual sight. I believe that those four things come from this text as Jesus counsels and advises them. Come to me. You have nothing. I have everything. And I will give you everything through my word through my wisdom and through my spirit. Jesus is going to say very specifically in verse 19, what should you do? And I think that it's all wrapped up. These four points are wrapped up in his command to be zealous. You can see it there. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Be zealous. That's a present imperative. It's continual action. Always keep doing this. Don't ever let off the gas pedal. Be zealous. Be fervent. Repent. This is in... A tense that means do it now, this instant. You haven't been doing it, do it now. Turn now. Turn now. 
Again, this is such a beautiful, gracious gospel call. How many times, just as we took communion last week, how many times have the Laodiceans taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? And God does not strike them down. How many times have they profaned the name of Jesus in their community? And Jesus says, I'm giving you time to repent. The lukewarm people are disgusting, deceived, destitute, dirty, diseased, and they will be destroyed, but not yet. They will be destroyed, but not yet. Before destruction comes discipline. They'll be disciplined. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof, because whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. So Jesus says, I'm going to discipline you because I love you. I'm going to discipline you to try and correct you before destruction comes in. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 6 say the same thing. Don't, don't forget the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't faint when you are reproved by him because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, we don't know what the discipline would look like. Maybe the very things that they're treasuring, maybe God's going to take them away to say, I want you not to trust in those things. I want you to trust in me. But whatever it is, we know that discipline is the loving and inevitable consequence of sin. If you choose to sin, God in his love will discipline you. And notice he says, I will discipline. He's not farming this activity out to somebody else. I will do this job. I will make sure that it's fair, that it's helpful, that it's encouraging, that it will hurt for a moment, but it will bring about righteousness. I will do this. Why does, why does Jesus say, I will discipline you. What's the motivation in verse 19? This is, this is shocking to me. He says, those whom I love. The only other time in all of these seven letters that that word love has shown up of Jesus explicitly saying, I love you to a church was the church in Philadelphia that had no condemnation whatsoever. They were doing everything right. And Jesus just said, you're doing great. Keep on doing great. Let me give you a couple reminders, but keep on doing what you're doing. And he says the exact same thing to this church in Laodicea. I love you. That's why I'm doing this. And he doesn't love the church because they love him back. Obviously not. That's the whole point. They have no love for Christ. He loves them in spite of their lack of love. You can write this down, make a note of it mentally. Jesus' love is not merely reciprocal. Jesus isn't waiting for you to love him, and then he goes, okay, now I will love you. He says, I choose to love you. This is Romans chapter 5. While you are an enemy, he says, I will love you. I choose to love you. And it is the love of Jesus that will lead us to repentance. This is Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Even as we heard this morning, nobody ever becomes a Christian uh, because of somebody arguing and berating them and being mean and emotionally abusive in their speech, and they go, okay, fine, yes, I will become a Christian. No. Jesus woos us winsomely, pleads with us, and loves us. So his warning is, is clear. I'm going to bring discipline, and if you don't turn from discipline, uh, because of the discipline, I will bring dis- destruction, but you still have time. That leads to point number six, the promise. The promise is in verses 20 through 21. Now, these, these verses have been 
used often in evangelistic calls to say that Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart, and I understand why they're saying that, but I think, again, if we interpret the Bible historically, we'll be helped as to the beauty of what Jesus is saying in these verses. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and I'm knocking, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, I will dine with him, and he will dine with me. Now, what's the historical understanding that will help us? What would the Laodiceans have heard and understood when they heard these words? Well, historically, when Laodicea was first founded during the Roman expansion in 133 BC, there was a law that required every home to house soldiers, Roman soldiers, if they needed housing, and to feed them if they entered your home. This was imposed hospitality, right? You must let them come into your home. They won't knock. They'll just barge down the door and say, feed us and let us stay here. Uh, Plutarch, who is a Greek historian who became a Roman citizen, said it this way. The people were subjected, the people of Laodicea, were subjected to the insults of the soldiers that were billeted upon them to whom their hosts were compelled to pay them a daily sum. So not only feed them, but pay them money. And they also had to provide dinner for the soldiers and their guests and clothing and daily subsidies for their officers. So this, this city knew this, this imposed hospitality. They knew somebody knocks your door down and says, feed me and clothe me and house me. You had to do it if they were a Roman soldier. That's why when Jesus says, I, I understand where you're coming from. I understand historically what's going on. I will knock at the door. I'm not imposing myself upon you. Jesus is contrasted with this practice. He isn't knocking the door down, demanding that they house him, demanding that they feed him. He's knocking, saying, I'm here, will you let me in? John Walvoord says it this way, God does not force himself upon anyone. No one is saved against their will. No one is compelled to obedience who otherwise wants rebellion. We've talked about this before. If you love Jesus, that's because Jesus graciously wooed you into a place where your heart changed in its affections and you love him. Sometimes that's a very dramatic change, like the Apostle Paul, where in, in an instant, in a moment, his eyes are open and he goes from hating Jesus to loving him. But nobody's going to be in heaven saying, you go up to them, you say, tell me your story. Well, I, don't, I didn't ever want to be here. I hate this place. I don't want to be here now. I don't like God. I don't like Jesus, but I just got forced to be here. Nobody in heaven's going to be doing that. Every single person in heaven, their heart has been changed. Their will has been changed. Their affections have been changed. They love Jesus now. So Jesus is just saying, will you listen to my voice? Will you hear my voice? Will you love me? I love you. I gave myself for you. Will you love me? He says, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And if anyone, anyone, anybody in, I, I believe he's knocking at the, the door of the church in Laodicea. I'm, I'm standing outside of your church and I'm knocking. And if anybody in this church would open up the doors, they would see me and I would come into him and I'd, I'd dine with him. I'd take him out for dinner. I'd be in his house and dine with him. The Roman soldiers wouldn't dine with the people. They'd say, feed us and then you go sit at your uh, table or you go stay in your bedroom and let us eat in peace. Jesus says, I want to be with you. I want to be with you. And I'm going to provide the meal. I'm going to give you the food and I'm going to provide the meal. I will dine with him and he will dine with me. 
I think verse 20 in chapter 3 is one of the most gripping scenes in all of Revelation. And that's saying a lot because you know the gripping scenes that are in this book. There's some crazy things that we're going to experience in this book. But I think this is one of the most gripping scenes in the entire book. Here is the creator of the church itself locked out of the church. Here is Jesus who died for his bride to make his bride and he's locked out of the church. Be like throwing a surprise party for somebody and not letting that somebody in. We threw you a party, but we don't want you. Or asking with a guest list at the door of the church, who are you, what's your name? And then Jesus shows up and says, I'm Jesus, I'm the Lord of the church, I'm the head of the church. Uh, we don't know who you are. We don't have your name here. You're not welcome. This is so gripping to see the reality of what sin does. It forces Jesus to stay outside and say, we, we have what we want in here. We don't need you. Now, it'd be very easy for us to think, man, these Laodiceans, they are just ridiculous. Praise God we're not like them. And I think that we would end up being just like the Pharisees. And say, I thank God that I'm not like that man. I'm not, I don't do all these. Just listen to what Jesus is doing here. And listen to who we are in light of this church in Laodicea. We all begin locking Jesus out of our lives, right? We all begin, as Ephesians 2 says, as children of wrath, because Jesus is locked out of our lives, and we say, we don't want any part of him. We all begin here. And then Jesus graciously comes to you. Now, if Jesus owns the church, and Jesus loves the church, but it's his how would we expect Jesus to show up at his church? Uh, in my mind, I see him showing up like the SWAT team, right? With one of those big metal things that you just bang the doors down and say, excuse me, how dare you lock me out of my church? But that's not what Jesus says here. He knocks, he waits, he calls, he woos, he's patient, he's long-suffering. This is the nature of our God. It, not the, the SWAT team, God, that just, pff, you're done. But please, with patience and kindness. We all begin here, just like Laodicea, and Jesus comes to us just like Jesus came to the Laodiceans. If you hear the gospel presented to you, which all of you have in some way, shape, or form, you've heard the gospel, then you've heard Jesus' voice here. If you hear my voice and open the door, you've heard Jesus' voice, not in an audible, mystical sense, but you've heard the gospel. You've heard the character and the love and the kindness of Jesus. You've heard his voice. He comes to you and he's spoken to you and he's asking you to open the door, to repent, to trust in him, to follow him. Why? Because number three, not only do we all begin where Laodicea is, not only, number two, does Jesus come to us, just like Jesus came to Laodicea, but number three, Jesus wants to be with us. The reason why he's knocking on the door is he wants to be with us. He wants relationship with us. He loves us, and he wants to be with us now. I'm going to dine with you now. I'm going to be with you now. But the story doesn't even end there. He doesn't just want to be with us now. And this is the second part of the promise. The promise in verse 21, not only will I be with you now, I'll dine with you now, I'll have sweet fellowship and communion with you now, but I want to be with you forever. 
I want to be with you forever, Jesus says. Verse 21, he who overcomes, there's our Greek word, Nike again, Nico, which means to, to overcome, to, to gain the victory. He who overcomes, I will grant to him. It'll be a gracious gift to give to him to sit down with me on my throne. You don't get much more intimate than sitting in somebody's lap. Jesus says, I want you to be with me so I can hold you on my throne. And then you'll also get all of the authority that I have. You'll also get all the power that I'm able to, to exercise. You will get governmental authority with me on the millennial kingdom, in the millennial kingdom on the earth. I want you to be with me, both relationally and authoritatively. I want you to be with me. And then notice he says, just as I also overcame, that's the same word, Nico, Nike, I also won the victory. I also conquered. And I sat down with my father on his throne. This is that crazy Trinitarian understanding back in John 17. Father, I pray that the people that I love, that they would understand the love that you have for me and the love that I have for them so that they may be in me and I may be in you and the Spirit may bond, uh, keep us in the bond of peace and love together. That's, I just want them to be loved and to understand the love that I have in a Trinitarian way with the Father and the Spirit. I, I love them. So he says, I've overcome. I sat down on my father's throne. You're going to sit with me on my throne. So you're sitting on the father's throne. This is, this is mind-boggling that Jesus would say, you can be with me. You can be with me. This would be like us just running into the Oval Office and just sitting down behind the desk and the president saying, yeah, you can totally do that. That's totally fine. Like that's when the Secret Service takes out their guns and says, get away, right? But Jesus says, no, no, no. If you've overcome and notice... If you've overcome, I will grant to him. I will gift to him. So it's not your power got you the throne. It's God's grace in his kindness giving us full access to himself. He says, I'm not going to give. There's not going to be any part of me that is held back from you. I want to give you all of me, both now and forever. You could also look in Matthew 19, verse 28. It says the same thing. Truly I say to you that those who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We'll talk about that more in Revelation chapter 20. So how do you overcome? Uh, just very simply, by the one who is greater uh, in you than, than the one who is greater than the one who's in the world. Greater is he who is in you than the one who is in the world. You overcome by the power of Christ. So he ends by saying the same thing that he said in all other letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Fervent love for Christ produces faithful living for him. The only currency that we have is brokenness. If you are rich, you can't afford this. If you are poor, then you have more than enough to buy it. Knowledge of your own depravity is the currency with which we purchase this kind of faith. Again, it's not a transaction that we make, but in an Ephesians 2 way, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace we have been saved through faith, and this isn't of yourself. Even the faith that you have to believe and to cling to Christ, that's a gift that God has given to you. So be zealous, repent, seek the rewards that Christ has promised to you. But all because of the motivation of loving Him, because He intensely loves you. Father, we thank you so much for our study through these seven letters and for this morning being able to just see the character that you have for us of love, of affection, of wanting fellowship and intimacy with us. And sin separates us constantly, daily. It is 
what removes us, what takes us away. And that's why repentance, like Martin Luther said, is a daily activity for the Christian. It's an ongoing reality. So God, we want to end our time this morning by by singing, by preaching to our own souls, by pleading with you a prayer from our hearts that would say, be be bigger in in our eyes, in our hearts, on our taste buds. Be more satisfying to us than sin. Enable us to love Christ. We need faith to do that. We need We need Christ's help even to cling to him. And so we ask for your help now. And we ask knowing that this is what you want. You want to be with us. And so we're saying, God, we want to be with you as well. May our church always have its doors open to you, the head of the church, the Lord of the church, and the God over the church.